This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our next guest has brought us some of the best stories over the last 30 years. His interest in sport is seen in many of his works, including Moneyball and The Blind Side. Now, Michael Lewis goes in a bit of a different direction by telling the story of two gentlemen who ended up with some of the most amazing critical thinking about the fact that perception changes sometimes our minds. What's interesting is that this book, amazingly enough, ties back to his prior work in Moneyball. The book is called The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds. And it's a great honor to have Michael Lewis joining us here in the studio. Nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. So this book ties back to Moneyball. Tell us the story and in, in how this all kind of came about. Right. So Moneyball led to this book in an odd way. Um, so Moneyball is, in, to my mind, mainly about um, the way markets misvalue people. It happens to be baseball players, but yep. it's a story about... Uh, this team that is the Oakland A's has got you know fewer resources than the competition. They have to find different ways to, get, to find baseball players, better yeah. ways to find baseball players. And they discover in the process that the market for baseball players is not efficient, that, uh, that they're good baseball players who aren't appreciated, and they're not so good baseball players who are overvalued and so on and so forth. So um, they, when they were doing their business at Oakland – we're aware that there were like systematic problems with baseball scouts mm-hmm. in the minds of the baseball scouts that they were that they had they made systematic kinds of mistakes, and they were in the business of exploiting those mistakes. When Moneyball came out, there was a review uh, by an economist named Richard Thaler and a lawyer named Cass Sunstein mm-hmm. writing together, and they said. Um, Michael Lewis told a nice story, but he doesn't seem to understand his own book. And, and they, they, said, they said that the, the, these biases that are in the mind of the scouts uh, are cognitive biases, and they were yeah. described and uncovered by uh, two Israeli psychologists named Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman. And I'd never heard of these guys. Right. And I thought, oh my God, how did I miss that? I, did, I never asked the next question, like, why? What's going on in the mind? It didn't occur to me that anybody <laughs> had anybody ever ha- had, right? Right. Uh, so... It took eight years, but I to to to, to do this book. Right. I took a few years after that review to finally have the wits to call Danny Kahneman and say I want to just talk to you about this. Right, and he had turned out he lived up the hill from me in Berkeley in the summers. Oh wow! And so I went up the hill and we had coffee, and then all of a sudden we we're taking long walks in the hills, and I start to hear the story of his relationship with Tversky, and I realized their work. That Moneyball and the old Moneyball phenomenon was one offshoot of their work, but that you could find it had crept into behavioral economics. It created behavioral economics. You found there they had an influ- influence in medicine and in law and so on and so forth. And I, I just thought the relationship, the characters were unbelievable. The relationship was this passionate kind of love affair, although yeah. without sex, but otherwise they were really kind of crazy about each other. And uh, there was a great deal of drama in the relationship, and it was incredibly, an incredibly important scientific collaboration. So eventually, I got around to realizing that this is a book on its own. A kind of, it's kind of a prequel to Moneyball. And, and the amazing thing is, is this was all thinking that they did what fifty years ago when they well, were when they were together, correct? It's about right. Uh, they 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 collide in 1969 at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, and the bulk of their work is done by the, and they start to crack as a relationship. The relationship starts to bust up right. in 79, 80, 81, by, by 81, 82. And by then they're at Stan, they're at Stanford and Princeton. Uh, but the, the, um, 
or not Stanford and Danny Amos Tversky ends up at Stanford and Danny Kahneman eventually ends up at Princeton. Right. Um, but so yes, it's work that was done a long time ago, and it and people read it. I mean, it was all work done in kind of arcane, boring uh, psychology journals. Right. And the work itself was not boring, but the context was so tedious, and it wasn't really aimed at anybody outside of psychology, except for one article they wrote in a, for a kind of general interest audience in Science Magazine in mm-hmm. 1974. And that reached people in all kinds of different disciplines. Hmm. And that's what, what what happened was they infected people's minds. And it just took a while. Sometimes take oh, ideas take a while to get hold, to, to, to take hold. And I think what happened was they explained to a lot of people why expert judgment was flawed. Right. And that, that why you had to be careful about it. That the intuitive judgment of experts had these in, this inherent fallibility in, in, in it. And, and then along comes the information revolution, the computer revolution, and it becomes cheaper and cheaper to generate both data and algorithms to and algorithms uh, to, to, to do things um, uh, to make this analysis and decisions uh, with computers that were previously done with by people in a way so so it's, that's what the Oakland A's do are doing yeah. right they're yeah. they're grinding they're finding new and better ways to collect and grind yeah. uh, baseball performance statistics and those uh, calculations end up being the basis of their investment decisions as opposed to asking some scout, is he any good? And part of that ended up being because of the fact that the Oakland A's didn't have the big money to be able to invest. I mean, they had to really, they had to figure out what was the best value for every penny, every dime in that team. And now it's interesting because that philosophy is now being used by so many baseball teams, but even the ones that have hundreds of millions of dollars to throw around. There's no reason to make stupid investments just because you have a lot of money. And that's what the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs eventually figured out. And they hired essentially most, for the most part, kind of disciples of Billy Bean and people who are following the methods of the Oakland A's front office. And so as a result, the Oakland A's are in a bad, in kind of a bad position again <laughs> because the rich teams now have not only the money, but they also have the same kind of intellectual uh, um, property. You call these two gentlemen, uh, Daniel and, and Amos, two of the most amazing characters you've ever been involved with. Yeah. Why so? Um, everything that came out of their mouths and their minds was interesting. I mean, it, it's... it's it, it, I knew that if I just got their words and their behavior down on the page, their character would infect people's minds. Mm-hmm. That, that, that people would start to think, what would Amos Tversky say? Or what would Danny Kahneman say? Now, the kind of things people said about them were, was extraordinary. I mean, Tversky was widely regarded. I mean, there was a psychologist at Michigan named Dick Nisbet, who after he'd spent a lot of time with Amos, designed a one-line intelligence test. And mm-hmm. the test was, after you've met Amos... Uh, the longer it takes you to figure out that Amos is smarter than you, the stupider you are. <laughs> and everybody who knew Amos said, yeah, that's right. Uh, that, yeah. And he wasn't obnoxious about it. It was just, he was kind of a, he was actually a Spartan warrior in the Israeli army. He was a right. he was de- highly decorated war hero. He was playful and fun and all the rest. But he took what you said and made it so more interesting than what, so much more interesting than what, what you had said. He, yeah. I mean, he was at, a, I mean, there are hundreds of anecdotes like this, but he was at a, a party of with some of the greatest physicists in the world, and they didn't know who he was. He was there kind of by accident. <laughs> and after the party, one of the young physicists who just won a very distinguished physics prize called up the hostess and said, 
who, who was that physicist I was talking to? And she just, she described Amos and she says that, that he wasn't a physicist. He's a psychologist. And the guy said, that's impossible because he's the smartest physicist I've ever met. And th- this kind of thing happened all the time. Uh, and he had this kind of logician's diamond cutter mind. Uh, he, th- he, he just had an ability to see things that other people didn't. And Danny was this really cr- kind of font of, of, of creativity. Yeah. I mean, what he, he was, Danny was kind of a poet novelist type, although he insisted on being a scientist. And, uh, and he just had the most startling original insights and ideas. I mean, who he does, to whom does it even occur to, that the imagination might obey rules rather than just be this free flowing thing. Right. And that you actually might be able to study and, and classify the rules of the human imagination and then design tests to do so. I mean, just as a, I mean, kind of, that's the kind of thing you do in an afternoon. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, he, he, who, who, I'll give you another example. Um, this is breathtakingly original and profound. Uh, both these guys were very heavily involved with the real world. They weren't just yeah. sitting in a, in a classroom they, right. because they were Israeli. They were fight, they were off every six oh, years sure, yeah. shooting and getting shot at. Sure, yeah. And but they were also training Air Force pilots and training tank commanders and so on and so forth. Danny was training Air, Air Force pilots one day. He was with the instructors rather. So in a way, he was training the tra- the, the, the the instructors. And he so noticed they kept saying, uh, "When you're teaching a pilot, uh, uh, praise doesn't work; only criticism." And he said, why is that? And they said, well, you know, when they do something great and we praise them, they're always kind of worse the next time. Right. And when you do something and they do something bad and we lay into them, they get better. So we've noticed. Sure. And Danny said, that's called regression to the mean, that what you're seeing is an illusion. It's a statistic. They did something great. It was a little better than what they normally do, but they have a kind of mean level of performance. And the likely thing that's going to happen next is they're going to revert to the mean. And, uh, and they, 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 and who not only sees that, but then says, realizes that we're kind of doomed to a lifetime as teachers of uh, getting this reinforcement that our criticism works more than our praise. But just simply because we're, that's what's going to happen when people are doing unusually bad or unusually good things. That they're gonna, if you respond with criticism and praise, there's going to be rever- this reversion to the mean, yeah. and you're going to get this feedback that your praise doesn't. And this is where, you know, I learned that I, I, this came out of his mouth uh, when I was, I was talking to him, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I was coaching all my kids' teams. I still do. <laughs> and I tell you, it changed the way I coached. That, because really? I noticed, absolutely, because you, because I had been, been on the, you noticing this, that yeah, it seemed to kind of work when you criticize them. They, if they did something really bad and you criticize them, they did get better. Yeah. And if you did something great and you, you praise them, it, it doesn't seem to do any good. But in fact, it's, it's baloney. It's an illusion. And so I made, I made a, uh, a huge point in my coaching, that the that it's three to one praise to criticism. I just sure, to yeah. offset this 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 te- this tendency, which is interesting considering the fact that that's the, the the way that so many coaches at the college level or maybe even at the professional level tend to kind of play things out. They would much more, I think, at times be critical yes. of a player, right. thinking that they will get more out of them than they will praise them. If you look at though the really smart coaches now, like in the NBA, Steve Kerr. Sure. Yeah. The criticism is very carefully placed now. Popovich. Very, oh, yeah. They're, just, they're not constantly on them in the same way, seeming thinking they can control through criticism. Right. What they are is they develop a relationship of trust through praise. And then when it's really important to say something, the yeah. player is listening. And that's what you got to do.
I think that's the way to do it. Uh, anyway, that's a that's an offshoot. But I mean, these guys, Danny Kahneman does not know a basketball from a football, right. and I mean, he, I mean, he has absolutely no uh, no interest in sports. He thought it was curious that Moneyball, this book, kind of came out of his work in a funny way. But yeah. but but things come out of his mouth that actually shift your view of how to do something that he has no idea that's even being done. <laughs> but, for, but for Amos's uh, history, uh, he's passed on and passed on a few years ago, correct? So He died. Uh, so how much of, of this did you have to, uh, about Amos, you had to kind of gather from other people and from Dan as well? So uh, Dan, Amos died in 1996. And uh, I thought when I kind of, before I started writing it, that re- bringing Amos back to life was going to be the big challenge of the book. And that right. there were big challenges in the book, but that was not the challenge. Amos is so vivid. He was such a strong personality. Right. And he did, he's got, a, he had a trait that was very useful in the biographer of a dead person in that he never did anything he did not want to do in the most extreme way. Um, he, if he, if, if he went to a movie with his wife, he would judge it in five minutes, and if he, <laughs> he he sensed this was just tripe, he'd get in the car, go home, watch Hill Street Blues on the sofa, and go and go pick her up at the end of the movie. And he'd say, you know, they took my they took my money. What they want my time to? And uh, and he 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 would his mail. Graduate students had endless stories about the huge piles of mail arriving for Amos. Everybody wanted Amos. Everybody sure. wanted to know what he thought. Yeah. And he would kind of go through the mail just looking at the envelopes, and he'd go unopened into the garbage can. Boom, 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 and he'd open one or two. And he'd look up and he'd say, I have a what-can-they-do-to-me rule. They can't do anything to me. I'm not going to open it. Uh, and so, so he was just – he said – he told people, you waste so much time worrying about social embarrassment and convention. If you were in a faculty meeting or a, uh, or a par- at a party and it really isn't – you know, you just feel like you don't want to be there. Right. Don't worry, sit there worrying about what people are thinking if you leave, of you if you leave, or don't worry about what excuse you make up. If you just get up and walk out, your mind will form the words that you need to explain why you're leaving. I mean, if he was, I mean, obviously he offended some people. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can see that you, happening you, quite you, often. You, absolutely, he, he offended some people. That's right. But but he was he was so charming about it, and everybody kind of knew. So as a result. Everything he saved and everything he did, all pieces of paper in his filing cabinets, every interaction he had with people, all the friendships are meaningful. He wasn't doing oh, anything right. to go th- just going through the motions. So he's his he, what he left behind says so much about him. Yeah. And uh, so it wasn't that hard to recreate him. And he was such he's such a great character. Author Michael Lewis joining us. Uh, the uh, new book that he has brought out is called The Undoing Project. You're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I heard in an interview you did recently that you kind of talked about their relationship that they had, almost a little bit like the Odd Couple. Like you know, it was like Felix Unger and Oscar Madison. Uh it was that. It was sometimes I thought I'm writing about Felix and Oscar, and sometimes. I thought I was writing Brokeback Mountain, but they screw each other's ideas. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and that there was, it was, they were, when they traveled, mistaken for a gay couple because they were right. so close. They were inseparable, but they were, right. they were completely straight, but they were more attached to each other than they were to anybody else in their lives. And, uh, but the Felix and Oscar thing, absolutely, even like, they were like Felix and Oscar, even like, even in the way they, Amos was a neat Nick and he, you know, you go into Amos's office and people say it was the most extreme thing yeah. that there was a pencil, you know, lined up with a desk 
on the middle of the desk, and that was it. And if Amos was working, he reached into the drawer next to him and he pulled out a pad of paper and it was square yeah. to the desk. And he did, and then he put it away when he was done. There were no books on the shelves, no paintings on the walls. It was just spare. Right. And Danny's office was such a catastrophe that this, his secretary tied his scissors to his chair so she didn't have to go look for them <laughs> oh, once again. Oh, God. And, and and so the, people said you you know oh, you God. couldn't find anything in Danny's office because it was chaos, and you couldn't yeah. find anything in Amos's office because there was nothing there. Uh, but they were opposite types. Amos was the life of the party. Everywhere yeah. he went, people that the I heard this some version of this description over and over. Amos walked into the room. Nobody really noticed him. He wasn't particularly physically distinguished in any way. He was kind of small and uh, unassuming, and he didn't dress in any particularly unusual way. Right. And he'd sit and listen for five or ten minutes. And then he'd say something, and everybody would turn to him. And he says, and they'd say, 20 minutes after he arrived, everybody was around him like moths to a flame. That just, it was just, and just he would just mesmerize people, take over the room. Danny uh, was distant. And removed from people, Hmm. kind of formal, very formal. Danny was at heart kind of a French intellectual, uh, just kind of aloof is the way it read. However, Danny is the one who wants to mix it up with the tanks drivers and the Israeli Air Force pilots, and he he did Moneyball for the Israeli Army. He completely transformed their selection system. Yeah. So in a way that the Pentagon's calling up and asking, what the hell are you guys doing? Because something's working. And, uh, And... in a way that they still, he, he wrote an algorithm to choose officers. Yeah. They still use today. And he did it in 1954 when he was 22 years old. Oh my God. No, no, it's incredible. And 60 and, more years ago. They, and, I went with him to visit the Israeli army base. And uh, he's worshipped like a god. They, they call the score they give young kids to determine where they go in the army, the Kahneman score. And uh, the, so at Amos was in his intellectual life, this very detached intellectual. I mean, he, if he left, if he had never met Danny, yeah. you'd never have heard of him because all he would have been doing is math formula. I mean, he, would, he, math, he was thought of himself as a mathematical psychologist and you don't know what that, you don't want to know what that is. Right. I mean, it's just like, he did not naturally engage intellectually with the rest of the world until he met Danny. Uh, so, so then does it surprise you then that with... The, the basis of what they kind of put together, which when you think about it, it, it does make absolute, I mean, perfect sense right, right off the bat, I think, about us having misconceived perceptions in a lot of cases. Does it surprise you that so many of this still plays out today in so many different, you mentioned baseball, but it could be very easily healthcare, or I heard you mentioned about the presidential election. I mean, mm. so many different things this could kind of play out. In. So what they identified were um, essentially the the tricks the mind plays on itself in yeah. various circumstances. And, and what they were doing was showing that Although life is often puts you in, you know, constantly puts you in these probabilistic situations, these the situations that might lend themselves to statistical analysis, do this or this, uh, choose this or this. Um, uh, and we don't do that. People aren't natural statisticians, but right. they, they do something else. Right. And they, what they do is tell stories. They find patterns. They, and they, they were showing the way the mind, when it's telling stories, to resolve uncertainty makes mistakes. And it does apply to everything. Everything goes through the mind. If the question is why having identified these cognitive illusions or whatever you want to call them, 
uh, they persist, why we don't pay more attention to them. Right. And I think that they would say that what we found in the mind was what we people found in the ear and the eye before. The, the, the eye tricks you, the ear tricks you, and we can show you even how it will trick you. There, there are a lot of really reliable optical illusions. Mm-hmm. But even if I tell you that that's water on the desert highway, not, that's not water, that's a mirage, you, you know, in your, you know, intellectually, yeah, yeah, that's right. But you still see the mirage. Sure. You, the, the optical illusion doesn't go away. I think they'd say the same is true of the cognitive illusion. It doesn't go away. It's very hard for a person to self-correct. So what you can do, uh, Amos would say, Danny's more fatalistic, is you can create, you can change your environment in which you make decisions, so people are more likely to point it out to you if you're making, if you got, if you're making errors. Right. So it, it argues for decision-making environments that aren't autocratic. And and an approach to decision making where the decision maker isn't assuming he's infallible or has unbelievable gut instinct. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, you kind of build checks into the process. And one kind of check you can build into the process, what the Oakland A's did, is uh, have good data about yeah. the decision you're making. You know, I'm looking at a baseball player. He looks like he could be a great major league baseball player, but it would be nice to have performance statistics sure. that that that. Uh, they give me a, a sense of the probabilities of him being a good baseball player. It's amazing because, and, and with my prior life, having been in baseball for, for many years, I can't tell you how many times that I've seen, and you know, I, I sat with scouts and talked to them about all kinds of different things, and about guys that I saw that were first-round draft picks or second-round draft picks coming up through the minor leagues that everybody assumed, yeah, it's a can't-miss, absolutely no question. Yet then, every once in a while, you'll have a case like Mike Piazza, who was a 60-second round draft pick, and just went into the Hall of Fame. And more than every once in a while, you got guys picked in the first round in every pro sport who, yeah. who don't who don't who don't work. Yep. I mean, it's not that it's not that there is an algorithm that is going to get you to a perfect answer, and that's kind of. But it, but it, it is that data can help you make the queer the odds in your favor a bit more. And the eye does really play tricks on you. So the book opens, actually, even though it's about to these two Israeli psychologists, with uh, a long section inside the mind and the front office of the Houston Houston Rockets. Because they are on the edge of trying to to, um, uh, rely exclusively on data and analytics in their decision making. Sam Hankey. Well, he was there. He was there. And, yep. uh, but Daryl Morey. And, yep. and even they see that, you know, eventually you hit, it hits its limits because you, you, instead of being wrong 60% of the time, you're wrong 50% of the time. And right. everybody's still a little disgruntled. So you let, the, you let the expertise, the intuitive judgment back into the process. And now you're dealing all over again with the cognitive illusions. How, how much do you think, though, that that, that environment that a, a person is involved in plays a role in that. And, and I ask that because, again, going back to the baseball thing, I've seen baseball players, again, that you thought were so going to be so successful in the minor leagues, great players in the minor leagues, but because of the situation they ended up being when they went up towards the major league level, that it, it just didn't work. It, it, you know, it absolutely just did not work. Players that I saw in the minor leagues that were great, that went to the New York Yankees, but because it's the New York Yankees and it's New York and there's all this environment around, it just didn't work. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is um, even more true in other sports because, you know, when you're playing baseball on the Yankees versus the A's versus a minor league team, it's, a, it's largely an individual sport. You yeah. Know? Um, but if you are a football quarterback 
uh, you know, you might be a superstar in one system and yeah. actually wash out of another system. If yeah. someone had asked Peyton Manning to run a wishbone offense or <laughs> or, or be a running quarterback, it'd be, you know, you know if they, that wouldn't work. Troy Aikman had that when he was at Oklahoma and had to go to UCLA. So you know, yeah. the, 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 this is true. This is a this is a different subject, but it's absolutely true yep. that. There is no, there's no such thing as like a great quarterback. It's a great quarterback in the right situation. Yeah, uh, yeah. and um, same is true to a lesser extent at the other positions, and certainly true in basketball. Um, I mean, Jeremy Lin. Uh, sure. Part yeah. of the problem Jeremy Lin had post Knicks. The re- I mean, he was in exactly the right situation in Madison Square Garden for a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, he he really is at his best is when he gets to have the ball in his hands. He's not. He gets to the Rockets, and he's not quite a, as good as James Harden in that role. Right, and yeah. so he's put into a different role, and it's just uncomfortable. You know, he's not. He's not the guy with the ball, uh, driving the. You know, so that, that, that that's you see this. You do see that over and over again. But that this is a different subject. It's a fun subject. Well, the, subject. but the fact that Dan Kahneman has, you know, sixty years later, that much influence in the Israeli army. It's that you know that's staggering. Well, you can you can trace their influence onto Wall Street. I mean, in the beginning of the move away from managed, you know, stock picking to index funds, yeah. their writing is there and their work is right there. You can tr- you can trace it into medicine where doctors start to question the wisdom of kind of doctors' diagnoses of disease. Yeah. Amos comes along and shows that they do work where they show that if I tell you that I, there's this operation that could that, that could cure your cancer, uh, but there's a 10% chance you're going to die on the table from the operation, yeah. you're you're only ha- you're 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 less likely, far less likely to have the operation than if I tell you there's a 90% sure. chance you're going to survive. Even yeah. though I'm telling you the same thing, yeah, 90% survive, 10 die. Yeah, that that you're twice as likely to have the operation. Doctors are twice as likely to tell you to have the operation. And I mean that's crazy. That's that that is a people. One of their insights was that people don't decide between things. They decide between descriptions of things. It's been great meeting you. Thank you very much for coming. The book is The Undoing Project. Michael Lewis uh, joining us here in studio. We'll take a break. Come back with more of Knowledge at Wharton here in just a minute on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.